How's everybody doing this morning? Great. Great. Wonderful. Cold. <clears throat> some are hot, some are cold. Um, I love Christmas music. This has nothing to do with the message. <clears throat> but we just sang Hark the Herald Angels Singing. And have you found yourself like in the grocery store or just in some random place and you hear Christmas music happening and you're like, they just sang the gospel. Like literally, like that song is the gospel and is playing everywhere. That's one of the reasons our prayer focus is sharing Jesus with others. It's just, just such a smooth on-ramp and transition. Like, did you just hear that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, like I said, it's not part of the message, but it just makes me love Christmas music all the more. Anyway, who knows this guy right here? <clears throat> they know who that is? Nobody? I stumped you. How about... No, it's nobody here, Heidi. Oh. <laughs> She's like, it's that guy. <clears throat> does kind of look like him, maybe a little bit. That's uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. Who knows the name Frank Abagnale Jr.? Raise your hand. Man, you people, come on. <clears throat> That's okay. Frank Abagnale Jr. is the subject matter of a 2002 movie called Catch Me If You Can. Now, okay, we're putting all the pieces together, right? We're putting all the pieces together. Got it. Okay, so Catch Me If You Can. It's an adaptation of a book talking about this man's life story. So, interesting, interesting character. Um, uh, at 15 or 16, I think, he took his father's gas card, went down to the local filling station, convinced them to let him charge the card, people pay him cash for the gas, and he would give a little bit to the gas station attendant, so he was making all this extra money at 15. Of course, his dad got the bill and freaked out, and it was a big deal, but that started his life of really trying to figure out how he could bamboozle people. He, he made his living on pretending to be something he wasn't. And if you research and you read the movie, it, it is an exaggeration in, in a lot of ways, but he absolutely did a lot of things that the movie um, claims, like dressed up as an airline pilot and wrote checks, um, cashed lots and lots of money uh, just by pretending to be somebody who wasn't. He pretended to be a, a professor at one point in, I think, Utah. He pretended at one point to be a attorney working for the attorney general's office. At one point, he posed as a physician all of these things, he was trying to position himself to be able to gain something, to garner something. But every single time that somebody would have an interaction with him, it was never with Frank Abagnale Jr. And so th that's an extreme example of what we're talking about this morning. But I, I want to ask you the question, when people have an interaction with you, are they really having a personal interaction with you, the real you, who you are? Does your hairstylist know the same person as your neighbor, as your boss, as your coworkers, as your barista, if you have one of those, as the person sitting next to you? Is it the same experience that all of these people have with you? It's important because our presence, it matters in God's kingdom. Your presence matters in God's kingdom. It's not a thing of arrogance or to say, look at me, I'm kind of a big deal, and I have 
many leather-bound books. Right? That's, that's not a, a, a brag. It is to say, though, that when people come into our presence, it should be more than just us that they experience. When, when you come around people in your life, they should have an interaction with you, but there should be something else, another part of that experience that they encounter. So I'm going to look at Colossians 3.17. I'm going to put that up on the screen real quick. This is kind of our key verse as we're working through our series here. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's sort of our anchor. We're going to help help shape the message through that particular text this morning. But before I go any further, I do want to pause and just and pray and ask for the Lord's help. So would you pray with me? Uh, gracious and mighty God, we, we thank you for another day to love you and to serve you. God, you... You are Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, not only did you take on flesh and and come and be here with your people as we celebrate in this Advent season and Christmas, that's what it's all about, Lord, but you're with us now. Everywhere that we are, Lord, you, you are with us. I'm so grateful for that. You are the Prince of Peace. You bring hope and life. You make a way for reconciliation, peace, and hope. And God, we want others to know about the hope that we have in you. We want others to experience the kind of of forgiveness and peace and rest that comes in being yours. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us focus now to hear why it matters that our presence in the world around us matters. Us being places with a purpose, with intentionality, it matters. So help us to focus now, I pray. Remove every distraction from our minds and give us focus, I I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's a questions phone number there um, if you want to text questions. We haven't had any the last couple weeks, and that's fine. But again, I don't want to lose sight of the fact this is an opportunity for us to communicate through um, asking questions via text message. So please do that. All right. If you are a note taker, you just want to kind of know where we're going. This this obviously is the culmination of our four-week sermon series, um, Waiting with Purpose. The first one, they're all B words, B something. What was the first one? B what? Be thankful or grateful, right? What was the next one? Be, I heard it earlier, content. Right, and then last week, be consistent. be consistent in order to be present. So the title of this message is cultivating a godly presence. That's what we're after here. We're cultivating a godly presence. The, the the idea here is putting all of these things together. Being grateful, being content, being consistent is helping to shape who we are to be out among the people around us who do not know the Lord. So I'm going to start with, with the why. why. Why do we or why can we cultivate a godly presence? And it goes back to my original sort of story opening up. Who are you outside of this building? Would, you, would people be surprised to know that you're a Christian? Would they be surprised to know that you went to church on a regular basis, you served, and that kind of thing? Maybe, maybe not. Just depends on where you are in your life and, and on your journey. 
whether we like it or not, people are watching us. Right? People watch how we treat others, how we live our lives. Sometimes they're watching for good intentions, sometimes maybe not so good. But as his representatives, and each one of us who profess Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are his representatives. We know that, right? We're called to be his ambassadors of these kinds of things. So how we carry ourselves, it does really matter. What people see and experience in us makes a difference. And so I think we can all agree that it's not just flipping a switch. At least I, I hope not. You know, you think of it like, okay, now I'm in the godly representative role, so I'm going to act this way. But when I'm over here, you know, it, it, it's something different. It's not a flip of the switch. It's not a, uh, a sort of Clark Kent model of Christianity. Y'all know who Clark Kent is? Yes. Who is he? No, he's not. He's Clark Kent. <laughs> but when he takes the glasses off, he does a quick change, then who is he? You don't like that one. How about Peter Parker? Maybe that's a little bit more relevant. The movie just came out. He dies in it. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Peter Parker is Peter Parker, but then he becomes who? Spider-Man. Wow, not many people knew that. Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man. So here's what you've got. You've got people acting a certain way. Those that, the what is it, the Daily Planet? Is that where Clark Kent works? He's mild-mannered Clark Kent living this way. But then all of a sudden, something changes and he's somebody completely different and nobody knows who he is. We're not looking for a Clark Kent style of Christianity. That's not what we're after here. People need to know who you are, the real you. So if it's not a quick costume change flip of the switch, then what is it? What is that godly presence we're looking for? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. So cultivating a godly presence, really, it's, it's a constant awareness of Jesus. It's an attitude, it's a state of mind. He becomes the filter through which our life is poured, right? So that everything that comes out of it has that essence. And the result is that when people have an experience with us, they have an experience with Jesus. You see, see where we're going with this? You see how that works? Now that may seem a bit overwhelming for some of us and, and a massive responsibility. And in love, let me tell you, it is. It is a massive responsibility, one that far too many Christians don't take serious enough. But as with all things in our Christian journey, I want you to hear this, it's not about perfection, right? It's not about perfection. It's about obedience and a willingness to mature in the process. Amen? Amen. So we're going to need some help. I can tell already. Uh, I'm going to need my help myself to get some reassurance on why this is an important aspect of our Christian faith. What from the scriptures and from our text this morning can help us move in that direction. So let's look at that key verse and see if we can get a little bit of a better grasp on the why question. Why cultivate a godly presence in our efforts to be a faithful representative of Christ? So we're going to break it down a few words at a time. So if you would put up... Um, Colossians 3.17 again. The first words are, whatever you do. That's what it says, right? And whatever you do. I love how Paul just sometimes, he a lot of times, he just lays it out so clearly for us. There, there's no wiggle room, no real, uh, is that really what he meant? 
Whatever you do, what does that encompass in our lives? Okay, everything. Now that may seem extreme, but twice in this very short verse, he uses this sort of all-inclusive language. So it's not an accident that he chooses that word. He's describing the scope of the things that Paul has in mind here. Whatever you do, everything. And I think maybe sometimes he does this to help us from making up our own categories in our lives that we feel maybe fall outside of the whatever you do category, because sometimes we're good at that, right? Um, It's the areas that we prefer to sort of keep private and on the side and away from that Christian, godly presence, living our lives for Jesus kind of thing, where, where we can act however we want and not worry about our Christian witness. Maybe we don't consciously do that, but sometimes we have areas of our lives reserved that are like, man, this is me, I can do whatever I want. And for me, sometimes, it's behind the wheel of the car. Nobody knows who I am, so I can act like a fool and drive crazy. Right? I can do that. I mean, I can, and sometimes I do. But should I? I mean, does, does that really take me off the hook? It's like, oh, you're behind the wheel of the car? Then don't worry about being a representative for me. You're good, do whatever you want. We, we have those categories in our lives, whether we admit it or not. Whatever you do, okay? In word, that's the next couple of words. Pretty self-explanatory, but let's put a little meat on this. How might we use the words out of our mouth in the name of Jesus. To put it another way, and think about this because I'm going to ask for your answers. To put it another way, how can our words represent Jesus well? What types of words can represent Jesus well? Give me some feedback. Kind words. Loving, encouraging. The truth? Truthful words. Okay, what else? Humble words. What is it? Praiseworthy. Praiseworthy. So we, we, we know a lot of the answers, right, of what kind of words come out of our mouth. Gentle words, patient words, caring words, uplifting words, others-focused words, gospel-centered words. So a few examples, but we, we know some of those already. But let's look to the scriptures and make sure that we're not just making things up. Just going to flip through a couple real quick. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Next one. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only... Such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. How we speak in all settings plays a vital role in cultivating that godly presence that we're talking about. But the verse, it's driving somewhere, so I don't want to linger on this too long. Let's move to the next section. The next two words, indeed. Not indeed, but in. We don't use that phrase a lot nowadays. What's another way of saying indeed? In our actions, right? In fact, 
um, sometimes that word is translated as works, meaning what we do with our lives. How many of them, again? All of them. <laughs> All of them. Again, maybe a little bit overwhelming. It's like, how is this even possible? I think the danger, though, here in looking at a thing like that and going, in everything I do, I have to be this godly presence. Sometimes we, in an effort to fulfill this, make it look like we're doing the good and godly thing, but we have a poor attitude, right? We're just going through the motions. So it's, it's, it's more than just about our outward action. Don't get caught up into, I'm this godly representative now, so I have to put on a show. And we're not putting on a show. In fact, I'd argue that our ability to carry this out ourselves in this godly way, it has to begin here, inside our hearts. How many of you heard the idea that God changes us from the inside out? We, we understand that. We know that, right? He gets a hold of our hearts. The word of God comes in us, begins to transform our lives, and eventually that comes out through our words and our actions. Isn't that what Jesus himself taught? Look at Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here the heart is being transformed and what comes out is a representative of Jesus. Or, in this case, the heart is wicked and what comes out is wicked. So we have to be changed from the inside out. And, and let me tell you, my friends, this is helpful because it removes ourselves as the primary cause for that type of behavior. It's not how hard can I work in order to see this kind of change. It takes you out of the seat, out of the role of the changer, and allows the Lord to do the work. But here's the deal. you got to position yourself to be changed. Right? There's a great book, if you're looking for a book to read over the holiday break, it's called Habits of Grace. It's talking how the fountain of grace and mercy is always flowing. God's grace and goodness is constant. But if we're over here at a distance looking at it, we're, we're unaffected by it. We're, we're not changed by it. We've got to position ourselves through reading and praying and, and being recipients of that. right? God will do the work to change us from the inside out, but we've got to put ourselves in proximity to that which will change us. Let's finish the verse. Do everything in the name of Jesus. Okay, so this is the crux of the whole verse. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. That's all-inclusive language again. Do it all in the name of Jesus. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that when we do things in the name of Jesus, we identify him, or we identify with him, so that others know to whom we belong. Like, oh, you're, you're one of those. You're a Christian. Okay. You're not acting on your own behalf. You're acting on behalf of the one to whom you belong. You're a, a representative. You're doing it in the name of somebody else. That's what an ambassador does, right? Ambassadors don't make the rules. They don't do these things. They, they represent the one who does. Secondly, the name of Jesus carries authority. Does it not? Absolutely does. Authority as the Son of God is the top of the chain. Right? There's, there's no name higher than that of Jesus, is there? So when we speak or act on his behalf, the weight of that name comes to bear on what we're doing. It's not that our words are special in and of themselves necessarily, but our actions reflect that authority. 
When people see us, they see in us, anyway, that authority that Jesus claims. What does he claim in terms of authority? Let's look real quick at Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the visible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible, or visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's pretty authoritative, right? In him all things were created, and he holds all things together. Like, that's the power and the authority of the one that we represent. So there's power in the name of Jesus. There's authority in the name of Jesus. And there's identity in the name of Jesus. So how we live in our communities, how we do our jobs, how we raise our kids, yes, even how we drive behind the wheel of a car, matter. It's an opportunity to portray Jesus to those around us. And you know, Paul teaches on this again, uh, something similar in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and 33. Let's look at that real quick. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That last verse is critical. What's the point in all of this according to verse 33? That they may be saved. Our godly presence has an end goal that people would see who we are and Christ in us that might compel them to move in the direction of salvation. And then giving thanks. These are the last words of the verse. So we have a tie-in back to our first message from this Advent series, giving thanks to God every step of the way. So cultivating a healthy, godly presence is directly related to cultivating an attitude of thanksgiving and praise. That's why the first question that we ask in a Discovery Bible study, well, let me ask you, some of you in the room have done a Discovery Bible study, the seven questions that you ask around the the story of whatever story you're studying. The first question we ask every week is what? What are you thankful for? That's the very first question in Discovery Bible Study. Every single time that we get together, we cultivate this attitude of thanksgiving and praise because sometimes we're bad at it. So many times I ask believers, what are you thankful for? And they struggle to express thanksgiving. Should we struggle to express the thanksgiving that we have in Christ? We shouldn't, but we do sometimes because we don't spend enough time cultivating that attitude of thanksgiving and praise. We must give thanks to God in all that we do. All right, so that's a sort of brief exploration of the why, why we should have a desire to cultivate a godly presence. And we've sort of skimmed the surface a little bit in some of the how, but let's spend just a little bit of time answering the how question because that's the practical thing. We know why, that we can be a witness to the world that they might be saved, but how do we do it? Well, first of all, we got to know that, again, we're not the source. God is the source. He is our ability to be a good reflection of him in the world around us. 
And we know that part of that is done through modeling gratitude, contentment, consistency, the thing we've been talking about in these series. These things help us to cultivate that. But let's back up in the text a little bit before verse 17 in Colossians chapter 3 to gain a little bit more of a depth in this. So how to grow so that when people have an experience or an encounter with us, they encounter Jesus. Go back to Colossians 3, 12 through 14. This is a little bit back from our key verse. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another love. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, go back one, please. So we have a, a, a put on sandwich. We've got put on, bear with, and then put on again. That's what we see here. Not, not to oversimplify things too much, but so much of what God asks of us and expects of us is not a mystery. I mean, there's a list right there. <laughs> he gives it to us. We don't have to wonder sometimes, what does God want me to do? So here, Paul's given us some very practical areas that we can focus on. What are the certain qualities and traits that we're supposed to put on from this verse? Compassionate hearts, kindness, patience, humility, meekness. Just before this passage, you can go back and read it for yourself. Paul gives us another list of things that we should put off. He goes, don't be these things. Take off this stuff, the bad stuff, so that you can put on this stuff. <laughs> so there's, there's an element of action on our part. Like, let's stop doing this so that we can start doing this. So there's the, the put on part. Then there's the bear with what are we supposed to bear with them? Bearing with one another. How many people enjoy when people complain against another and gossip to you? It's really fun to be a part of those conversations, right? Easy to bear with people that are difficult. No, it's not. But he tells us, bear with them, forgiving them. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And then we've got the other half of the put-on sandwich. Put on... Love. Above everything else, love is the motivator. Again, not your fleshly kind of love, but a love that comes through Christ's love for you, then extended to somebody else. Right? We're not the source, we're the conduit, right? the passage of that love. Can you go back to verse, um, the one with the slide before that? Which of those things that we are to put on stands out to you the most? You don't have to answer out loud, but you can if you want. For me, it's compassionate hearts. And when we read a list like this, something is going to stand out for one of two reasons. Either it's because it's something you're gifted in, or it's because it's something you need to grow in. For me, it's compassionate heart because in my flesh and by nature, I am not a compassionate person. I'm not. That's a joke's on me, right? God's going, oh, you're going to be a pastor now. I've had to work hard <laughs> to trust in others 
and my wife, who has probably been the biggest advocate for me to grow in compassion for people, but it's not something that comes naturally at all. So when I see that list, I'm like, oh, compassionate hearts. Okay, Lord, help me. <laughs> grow me, please, because I need compassion for people. Which of those areas could you use some maturing in? And then ask yourself, which of those areas are you gifted in that you might be able to help somebody else grow in? So it's not just about, oh man, I'm really terrible at this, I need to grow. But there's something that you are gifted in that you can actually be an encouragement to somebody else to grow in. So don't just look at the negative. All right, next, 315. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. How does the peace of Christ rule in us? When I was reading this, it's actually an athletic term. It's used to describe a person who would judge the games and disqualify people who didn't follow the rules. My buddy Warren Wearsby calls them umpires. And then he calls the peace of God, the umpire in our lives as we're following the will of God. He says, we'll know we're in the will of God when we have his peace ruling in us. And when we're outside of the will of God, we're living for ourselves, we do not have the peace of God ruling in us. It's sort of like this, this judgment of, hey, are you in the will of God? <laughs> the umpire, peace, says no, because you don't have it. It's not there. And then other times you're like, yeah, I have a peace. I'm, I'm pursuing godly things. This impacts us relationally as well, because when we have the peace of God, we have peace with God, and who else do we have peace with? People. <laughs> Others. So this is an important ingredient in cultivating godly presence, this peace of God. We need to let the peace of God dwell in us. And what's the end of verse 15 say again? Be thankful. Be thankful. Oh, a recurring theme. Thank you for that, Paul. Next, 316. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word dwell means to feel at home. So that is to say, the word of God should feel at home in our hearts and in our lives, informing our decisions, shaping our attitudes, and correcting us. That's what the word does, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? Teaching, proof, correction, training in righteousness. That's what the word of God does. We know, at least I think we know, the importance of the word of God in our lives helping to shape us. But it actually says something else in this passage that I've never really connected before that I want to just briefly spend talking about. One scholar says this. He says, there is, according to Paul, a definite relationship between our knowledge of the Bible and our expression of worship in song, that is, singing. Let me read that again. A definite relationship between our knowledge of the Bible and our expression of worship in song. We see that in the middle of verse 16. One way we teach and encourage ourselves, he says, and others is through the singing of the word of God. But if we do not know the Bible and understand it, we cannot honestly sing it from our hearts. When I read that, I was like taken aback. 
Now, listen, I know a lot of us, many of us, we don't like to sing out loud because we think our voices are less than or, or whatever, and I get it. And I would challenge you to reconsider that thinking. But this point about knowing the truth, knowing what the Bible says, impacting the depth of the song of our hearts is really significant to me. Like, I'm a musician, I'm a singer, I'm a, I'm a worshiper. And to know that my understanding of who God is and the Word of God impacting my song? I'm not going to sit with that for a while and unpack that, but that just kind of hit me and I wanted to share that with you briefly because we sing together regularly, right? It's an expression of our love for him, but also an expression of our understanding of who he is and it cultivates a godly presence. The bigger picture as we're looking to cultivate a godly presence is that the word of God is critical. It's essential, instrumental, whatever word you want to put in there to that process. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it, apply it in your lives in every situation. Oh, don't miss the end of verse 16. How do we do it? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, Paul's just really good about hammering the important things home. That's the third time now he's talked about thankfulness. So think about all that we've discussed this morning so far and and consider how you might develop a godly presence in, in all the various settings in your life. And we all come from different walks of life. We all have different areas. There's some overlap. You gotta be ready to insert yourself into these particular situations with an intentionality of being a godly presence. So let's just talk about three places where we can do that, that we all have in common, at least. In the home. So we're cultivating a godly presence in our homes, whether that's a house, an apartment, barracks, dorm room, wherever you lay your head at night. One of the ways that we can do that is through a worship time. If you've got a family, a family worship time. If it's just you, a a time where you read the Word of God, you pray the Word of God, and you sing. You actually worship. That's cultivating a godly presence in your home. But other ways you can do that is by bringing people into your home. That stretches us, a lot of us. Inviting people into our home is tough for some of us. But it's a way to cultivate that godly presence. Sharing what you have with others under your roof. It also means giving of your time intentionally the people who are under your roof. You got roommates. You got kids. You got elderly parents that live with you. Whoever is under that roof, you're intentional with your time with them. Sacrificial. That's actually cultivating a godly presence by putting others first. So you can do it in your own home just by simple actions in how you invest in other people. What about the workplace? Okay, here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, Bible-thumping people waving around your morality like a banner. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your willingness to serve sacrificially. What do people see when they see you in the workplace? I know Mike talks about this a lot. He's, he's in the workplace. I, I haven't been for a while. But what, what do they see? Do they see a hard worker? Do they see somebody who's lazy, who, who cuts corners, who's just trying to get that promotion to do whatever they can? 
Or do they see a person who volunteers for the least desirable work details or jobs or tasks for no other purpose than to express your love and appreciation for people? You know what? I'll do that. I got it. I know, I know you don't like to do it. I, I got it. And not, not coming back and going, let me teach you about Jesus. Maybe if that's appropriate, but just for the sake of serving and loving others in that workplace. Ask yourself this question in the workplace. As a Christian, is your life compelling or is it repelling? It's one of the two. And sometimes maybe a little bit of both, if we're being honest, right? So cultivate the areas that need growth. Capitalize on the areas where you are gifted, where that godly presence is made known through your actions, through how you carry yourself, the words that come out of your mouth, word and deed, just like we read in 317. What about the community around you? Engaging your community is important. Again, we all come from different walks of life. That community looks different. But there should be a concern with the community around you, whether it's your neighborhood, a certain aspect of the community that's lacking or in need, mercy and social concern we talk about in our group life class, like extending our gospel witness through meeting the needs of others. Maybe it's homeless people. Maybe it's uh, single moms or, or parents that are struggling. Whatever it is that God is drawing you to, there's an opportunity to cultivate a godly presence by serving others in our community. It's meeting physical needs. There's a really cool Facebook group um, Ours is Buy Nothing Vista because we love in, we live in Vista. But it's a nationwide thing. Buy Nothing Oceanside. I'm sure there that exists. Anybody on that? Yeah? Tons of people um, in a community going, hey, I need this. Or other people going, hey, I've got this. It's, it's fantastic. So there's a, another way to, to actually reach out and say, hey, I've got all this food. I've got these extra things. Whatever it is. Some people could get on there and go, hey, uh, um, I'm meeting people here um, to go do this community project. There's just there's all kinds of ways to be engaged with people through that way. Uh, another way is prayer walking through your neighborhood. How many have done a prayer walk through their neighborhood? The neighborhood you live in right now, you've prayer walked. Man, if you haven't, I would encourage you to do that. That is a way to cultivate a godly presence. They see you walking through the neighborhood every day at the same time and, and like, what are you doing out here? Oh, I'm, just, I'm just praying for our neighborhood. I, I love our neighborhood. I love our community. I want to see it thrive and grow. So I'm just, I'm walking out here. I'm praying. That's cultivating a godly presence in your community. So using the tools that we've kind of gathered from Colossians chapter 3, our aim is, could you put the last slide up? It, <clears throat> to mature in Christ and be present so that others may experience God's presence through you. It's, it's interesting. I was going to say it's funny. But it's not funny. It's interesting that in putting this series together, Mike and I were talking about this the other day, we didn't have an order specifically. We just said, what do we want to talk about? Let's talk about these four things. And we just jotted them down. And then we saw how God is just orchestrating, building these things on one another. We start with an attitude of thanksgiving and praise. Like that's, 
we got to have an appreciation for who God is, which allows us to be content in all things, which motivates and moves us to want to be more consistent in who we are, in our quiet time, in our, in our areas where that's cultivating a godliness in us in order then now to be present in our communities, in our homes, in our workplaces, so that people can experience Christ through us. So just take that with you this week, this month, this year, this lifetime, because it is a lifelong journey. But let's move in that direction. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of all things. Every bit of sacrifice, every bit of pain, <laughs> growing in this way can be painful. Pruning, the words you use, refining, the refiner's fire, chiseling, these are not comfortable things, Lord. But I, I pray, Lord, that each one of us would see what a significant and important role we play in your kingdom as your ambassadors, as your representatives. Help us to know, God, that you're the one that gives us what we need. You're the source. We read about it and studied it in John 15. You are the vine. We're the branches. We need to remain in you, abide in you, stay connected to you, position ourselves to receive from you so that it is borne out in the way in which our lives are lived. There's the idea, Lord, of, of the word of God impacting our head, our heart, and our hands. We have an intellectual understanding of your truth, God, which moves into a heart sort of change and condition, improving to know you and make you known, which then gets expressed through our hands, our head, our heart, and our hands. God, some of us need certain growth in, in those different areas. So just lead us this morning. Show us where we ought to invest ourselves and our time to cultivate a godly presence so that the multitudes may know you and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.